Shalom, James. Shalom, Rabbi, and shalom to all of our Jerusalem Lights listeners and viewers. Shalom, everybody. Always good to see you, Jim. Thank you. Good to be seen. You know, I'm always flummoxed by the uh, disparity in the Torah. <laughs> Do you like that word, flummoxed? It's a great word, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was just waiting for an opportunity to use the word flummoxed, and I said to myself when I got up this morning, I wonder if there'll be any chance at all for me to use the word flummoxed. Mm. I'm flummoxed by the disparity of the Torah readings that we are experiencing now as a result of the second day of the festival that, that's observed in the diaspora, you know, that has its own Torah reading. So that's actually going to continue until July 1st, when you in the diaspora will read the last, will read two Torah portions of Chukat and Balak, and we'll just be reading Balak and we'll, and we'll catch up. And uh, it's always just very frustrating to me. It's kind of like being in some sort of a, of a time warp. You, you know, know, Rabbi, and this will allow me to use one of my favorite words. It's, it's an anachronism almost these days. It's, I'm also bothered. It vexes me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm seeing and raising your flummox. So anyway, yes. sorry. And the reason for the vexing and the flummox state of mind is simply because it, it gives a certain kind of a feeling of disconnect. Yeah. You know, but uh, in the meantime, it's all part of the divine synchronicity of what we all need to be experiencing also, which is in itself an amazing concept. And, um, and I also find that, that when this happens, I, I find more of a bridge Mm -hmm. In the thematically and the ideas of both of both Torah portions, really, like yeah. so. For example, this week, you are reading Bahalotcha, and we are already reading the portion of Shalach, which for me is always a crisis year yeah. after year. Rabbi, would you uh, the would, sin could, of would it be good to suggest that uh, in this disparity between these two, would would you say that the the parsha that is read in the diaspora uh, is specifically addressing those in the diaspora in a certain way? Don't you feel that? Or not? That has to be, that, that definitely has to be a, a factor in, again, in the divine synchronicity, that, yeah. because the message that's broadcast to each and every one of us is always very, very personal. So there is this lag, you know. And, but the thing is that, that what's developing for both of us, for all of us, what's developing in terms of the, the overall portrait that's being painted in the Book of Numbers is the unique, frustrating to understand, flummoxing, <laughs> vexing character of this generation. Amen. You know, yeah. the, the generation of the, of the desert is so enigmatic and so difficult to, to understand because, you know, the, the Book of Numbers is actually affectionately known as the Book of Mistakes, because it chronicles the the very very kind of like blatant mistakes that the generation made, and of course it all comes to a terrible crescendo in the Torah portion of Shalach, which is going to be read in the land of Israel this week, which of course is the turning point in history because it's it's the disastrous sin of the spies and the time of the decree that was made against that generation that they were not going to be entering into the land. That hasn't happened yet. You know? So that's interesting for both of us mm -hmm. this week because it's like foresight and hindsight. It hasn't happened yet in Parshat Bahalotcha. In fact, you know, as far as you're concerned this week, when you begin reading in the book of Numbers chapter 8, they're about to go in. Yeah. You know, they're about to go into the land. And Jim, when the children of Israel go into the land of Israel, that is going to affect this cosmic 
tikkun, this rectification of no less than Adam's eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. They're going to go in and they're going to set to rights the delicate balance of the relationship between man and God. This, it's, it's, it's going to be like a, an opportunity to bring paradise into the world. Israel going into the land, living according to Hashem's word. That's what's about to happen. I mean, they've dedicated the tabernacle. It's ready to roll. And their path now is to go straight in. And they have a little bit of a... Of a um, uh, uh, they, have, they have a little bit of a... They go off track. They have a little bit of a, of a um, disappointment and a, and a postponement mm-hmm. because of the complainers. Yeah. Right. So the complainers, that's a whole other story. But still in all, that was, that was kind of just like a, like a sidebar almost. It's, they're still about to go in. It's only when, when it came to the decree that was made in, in the wake of the sin of the spies that everything changed. Yeah. I, I think the, the primary theme of the whole Parsha, and, it, and it, like you, you spoke of it being a bridge to the connecting to the next Parsha, the, the even the 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 phrase uh, uh when you ascend, I mean that speak I mean, ascend in one respect is is aliyah. I mean, the I I noticed in the the word alot uh, it's like the same as maalot an ascent. So this this sure. speaks I believe to our our the Jewish community and by extension the rest of us is. Uh, the idea of of Aliyah and of getting ready and and not just that but to to, to th- this is this whole kind of fruit basket turnover that that is in preparation for getting up and marching out into the wilderness is is a preparation for uh, the soul the character uh, of of the, these people to finally begin to elevate to grow. God is just calling him out and saying, time to get up, time to grow up, time to get out of the pool. Right. And last week in, the, in our Torah portion video of Jerusalem Lights on Parshat Baha'u'llah, I spoke about the menorah. And one aspect of the menorah is its comparison to a human being. And so Baha'u'llah literally means when you cause, when you cause it to, to rise up, because the instructions for Aaron in, in kindling the temple menorah is that he's going to cause the flames to to raise up. And of course, there's so many levels of meaning all over Torah that are simultaneously true at the same time. So, so just like we, we mentioned at the parasha before that, Naso also has a connotation of elevation. The Torah's whole goal is to elevate man. It's all about raising up above the mundanity of the human condition and about touching the soul and about our connection with the eternal. That's what it's all about. And, and of course, Eretz Israel is a key for all of that. But this conundrum of, of, the, of the generation of the desert, I think, is one of the most fascinating studies in all of Tanakh, because I don't know if you're aware of it, Jim, but, the, but our sages of blessed memory, they are extremely, um, extremely um, positive in their, in their description, in their, in their praise, in their understanding of who these people were. This is the generation that received the Torah at Sinai. This is the generation that heard Hashem's voice. They experienced something that is uh, literally a, a portal into eternity, the Sinai revelation. They ate the manna, mm-hmm. and they drank from the water of the well of Miriam. This is a, um, an experience that, is, that is, uh, calls a person to task. You know, eating the manna was a, a very, very uh, kind of like... Um, 
uh, like an acid test of who a person is. You know, you had you had to be very very pure of spirit to be able to eat the manna. It was almost like a what is that called? Like a barium X-ray. Mm-hmm. You know, it ha- it had a way of proving what who a person is. Everything about the manna. And the water of the well of Miriam as well. So, so they were a generation that was that was on this cutting edge, and their righteousness was so uh, amazing. They're called the generation of knowledge. Their relationship with God was so, dare I say, intimate. Mm-hmm. You know, their clothing grew with them. It, their clothing was cleansed and pressed by the clouds of glory. Yeah. Their feet never blistered or sw- or swelled up uh, in all of their desert trick. Uh, and and then you know we learned that they actually never needed to relieve themselves yeah. all throughout the years that they spent in the desert because the manna was a spiritual food and it just was absorbed into their into their limbs and then there was nothing to expunge because there was no waste no byproduct it was part of Hashem's word as it were so so they're on this unbelievable level and then the sages continue and they and they talk about how you know they were so high. And they had so perfected themselves that they experienced no decay in the grave. They experienced no rotting away. Their, 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 everything about them was like uplifted to like this incredible level of, of perfection of the human condition. That's side A. Yeah. Side B <laughs> is everything that we are experiencing throughout these parshia where we see that these people are, pardon me, be- obnoxious, behaving mm-hmm. in a very, very obnoxious way. Hashem, Hashem says that they're just so annoying. They, they test Hashem ten times altogether. In this week's Torah portion, Baha'u'llah, you have the, the rabble that uh, cultivated a craving. Right. And that brought the whole nation down with them. And, 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 and the words that are used there are so unbelievable. They didn't have a natural craving they cultivated a craving, it says in Hebrew, meaning that they looked at themselves. They, they, they cultivated their complaining. Exactly. They, they, they de- that means that they developed complaining into a fine art. Yeah. <laughs> but, they, but they looked at themselves and they said, wow, how could this be that we're, that we're nourished by this uh, kind of like ethereal, like otherworldly spiritual food? We're not functioning like normal people is it possible for a person to have intake and not to have output and uh what happened to the steaks that we ate in egypt <laughs> what happened to all that free food the the, the meats it's also uh absurd because they mm-hmm. certainly didn't give them free food and you know what our sages say about that comment where they said they remember the free food it's like what they're alluding to is that they were free from the yoke of heaven. They were free from the responsibility of having to do the mitzvot. Uh, so they, so they, they were kind of like couching it in that expression about the, the free food. But the, the point is, so we read about the complaints. We read about their lack of faith. And we have a hard time, um, you know, uh, uh, balancing that out with the, with the great praise and the, and the beautiful secrets of Torah that were taught about the greatness of that generation because we were told that they were so holy, that they were men of knowledge, that they were this untouchable generation and so close to Hashem. And at the same time, they, they had all of these foibles. And of course, it comes to, the, to a terrible, terrible screeching halt, a terrible explosive crescendo in the Torah portion of Shalach where they had this total freakout. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, and the spies who went into the land, for whatever reason, they had that about face, because at the time that they went in, they were absolutely tzadikim. They were the heads of the tribes. They were the, the, they were the cream of the crop. They were giants of the spirit. But then when they went into the land, they had this tremendous, tremendous cosmic uh, schizophrenic kind of attack. And they came back, and they brought the whole nation down, and they led them into, into national mass hysteria, and Hashem had basically had it, as it were, yeah. and said, uh, I forgave you for the sin of the golden calf, which was almost a type of idolatry in that, you know, that was more of, a, of like an insult to Hashem's oneness, but he forgave them. It was business as usual after that. But now you speak against the land of, of Israel, you're speaking against the land, and you're doubting that you could go into that land. That's it. You're going you're gonna to fall here in the desert, and your children, about who you were so worried, they'll go in. Yeah. So how do we balance all of this out, is my question. The, on the one hand, the, the, the fact that this... And we're actually told in so many words, Jim, in the writings of the sages of Chazal, there never will be another generation as great as this generation. They were absolutely almost like, like, like human angels. They were so high. They, again, they heard Hashem's voice. They had that relationship with Him in the, in the desert. They were literally suspended on another level of reality. And, and they ate from His table, right? Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the Oros, who brings forth he- bread from heaven. Not hamotzi lechem in haaretz, right? Yeah. Over, their, over their manna, they said that blessing. Yeah. And then and then we see what happened to them, and we see what happened to them eventually. It's a tragedy. The, sp- the story of the spies is a terrible tragedy, terrible busted balloon of lack of faith. How do we understand this, this you know, bleak dichotomy that of such extremes? Yeah. I, I think part of the answer to that question, again, is, is I bring it back to the, the phrase, when you ascend. Because, you know, you just talked about this uh, this sort of conundrum is is the fact that they're longing for the leeks and the garlics and the flesh pots of, of, of Mitzrayim, of Egypt, and yet, in saying, you know, we enjoy this for free, here God has them in this special place within the cloud, and they're, they are literally are being fed for free. They're being clothed for free. This is, I think this is uh, the... the, the uh, overwhelming message here is that when you are doing Hashem's business, especially especially Am Yisrael, when they are in in full bloom as a priesthood, and and uh, living this these pure lives of Torah, God provides. God God is saying, look, you don't live by bread alone. If you you live by manna, you live by the heavenly bread, not just the actual manna, but but everything everything that's that's coming down from heaven. Uh, they and I think it shows you again what happens to uh, when you ascend. You're you go, you're going to be tested. You're going to have to throw off. They they weren't able. The majority or was it the majority could not throw off the shackles of of materialism, of they, they they didn't lose their appetite. God was saying, "I want you to I want you to develop an appetite for the heavenly, not the earthly." Yes, yes. And but the thing is, it's such a fine line that a human being walks. It's yeah. a tightrope, because we are we are souls trapped in this physical trapping in this envelope. We talk about this often. 
And it really is an art form to be able to walk that line. That's our challenge, right? Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's, it's not funny. It's amazing that you mentioned the phrase of um, not, by li not living by bread alone, but by, 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 by everything from the mouth of Hashem. Because one of the most um, amazing parts of our Torah portion of Baha'u'llah that you're reading this week is about the divine signs of the travels. Yeah. And uh, how the, you know, the tabernacle, once it had been set up, so they had the cloud of glory over the tabernacle during the day. They had the fire at night. And whenever the cloud was lifted, then the children of Israel would journey. They would follow. And wherever the cloud would rest, that's, that was their next stop. And, and the verse tells us, by the bidding of Hashem is how it's translated, but it's really, in, literally in Hebrew, al-pi Hashem, by the mouth right. of Hashem. Yeah. Yeah. By the mouth of Hashem. So, you know, for, for practicality, we translate it by the, by the word or by the bidding of Hashem. They would, they would journey, they would encamp. Sometimes it was in one place for a week, sometimes for a month. Depending, they would encamp and they would travel. That was like to know where you are in the world of a certainty is exactly where Hashem wants you to be. It's just like another yeah. factor that just points out the incredible characteristic of that generation that they were, did they know what they had? <laughs> did they appreciate it? In other words, a person wants, or wants some sort of divine confirmation. You know, a person wants their clarity in their life. A person wants a guru. A person wants a, 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 a quick fix, a direct line. They literally knew that Hashem is guiding them. And, and uh, it, was, it was this, this amazing feeling of divine um, providence. Now, one of the great lessons that we learn from this for all time is that that's actually how it is for all of us. Yeah. That there are signs, there are directional signals that we're, at, and whether we see them or not, you know, it's really, it would really, really great if we had a pillar of, of fire at night and a cloud of glory in the daytime. And maybe we do. But the point is that, we're, that when, we're, first of all, the whole template of the journeys of the children of Israel in the desert, according to the Holy Baal Shem Tov's teachings, the whole, that whole template is universal, that every person in this world has to go through these, actually in total, 42 journeys along our road to, the, to what we strive, to, to what we seek, to, to the level of perfection that we're going to be able to, to achieve in, in Hashem's world. We have to go through the things that we have to go through, Jim. There's no, there's no, there's no way out of it, but there is this merciful GPS system of guidance, of navigation that Hashem does give us these signs along the way. Yeah. So again, yeah. on the one hand, they had that. On the other hand, they didn't always recognize it. Yeah, that's the key, they, is having the eyes to see this. You, when, you're, when you're battling, uh, you know, uh, two centuries of materialism, this is, they came out of 210 years of, of living in Egypt, they're much like the the prisoner who who's been in prison for most of his life, and he gets out. I'm I'm, I'm always whenever we we read this parsha, I'm always uh, what always comes to my mind is that scene in um, the Shawshank Redemption, where this wonderful actor James Whitmore, who uh, who uh, I think it's one of his last films, it shows him in a quiet scene where he's released after a life of prison. 
And, and uh, sadly, what does he do after living a few days outside of prison? He hangs himself because he cannot deal with, with not being uh, this, this life of being behind bars, of being told exactly when to eat and exactly these, these, this confined world he was in. He couldn't deal with the reality of being free. All he could think of was his, was his past. He, he, it's, it's the, I mean, I'm using a, well, a you know, well-worn phrase, but you know, the, the people of Israel had to get out of their comfort zone, no matter how uncomfortable it really was in reality. And so th- this, again, is, is something that applies to us. And I, I'm also fascinated by the use of the, uh, in this same Parsha, that's, that's telling us when you ascend is we have the figure of the, the not the figure, but we have the, um, the menorah. And, and the menorah, of course, is the national symbol of modern Israel. It's, it's, on, the, it's on the state seal or, or ensign. And um, here's the thing that's, here's a, a, a device, if you will, that's, that's hammered from one lump of gold. And it's, it's one mass, it's, it's filled with pure olive oil, and um, it gives off light. And it just speaks again to, to those who have made the commitment, who have left behind the, the leeks and the garlics and have, have gone to the real promised land now. The idea is, is that uh, I, I think God is speaking to those who haven't made that commitment that the menorah, especially in this Parsha, about, about ascending, making Aliyah is, is the, uh, there is a purity, there is a singleness of purpose, and there is a unity that God is asking for when he presents the menorah to us and especially to, to the Jewish people. They, they have to look to that as, a, as guidance, as, as a symbol of what God is asking of them, especially the unity which... which Mm-hmm. I hate to even bring it up. We, we, we see that that is not going on right now in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. So much, so much uh, division. But uh, I keep wondering, you know, the, the menorah that's... I have a, this is the question I have, especially for you. When we, when we think of the menorah that is on the state of, of uh, the seal of Israel... That's actually patterned after the, the, the one seen on the Arch of Titus in Rome. <clears throat> Do you think that that's actually the correct image of the menorah that was in the, the sanctuary? And does, is that a sign to us in any way? There is a very ancient controversy in the annals of Torah scholarship as to the original shape of the menorah. Right. If it was rounded branches, as we see on the Arch of Titus, or if it was yeah, straight branches, yes, right. Very it's, straight. it's um, it's a it's a very ancient controversy, and theoretically, both shapes would be would be possible, would be right. as it were kosher to use in the in the temple. Um, there's a tremendous amount that's been written about it, and why it's so, why we have <clears throat> why we have these two different opinions. Um, I I want to I want to give a little bit of a of a teaser, but I'm not I I shouldn't because I don't know how long it's going to take. But there is a film in 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 the works ah. 
um, in, in Jerusalem Life, there is a, a film about the concept of uh, uh, the difference between the two. Yeah. On the level, on the level of what we might call quantum. Right. Understanding what it what it really represents in terms of the light and the sh- and the shapes of the branches. So that's something that we'll look forward to at some point in the future. So, um, um, simple, simple answers. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you at this point. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Jim, uh, you know, you mentioned about how the people were in, you know, kind of admired in the materialism of Egypt for hundreds of years and the difficult situation. Of course, how much more so is it for us a challenge to be responsive to the call of our higher soul, of our inner nature, of, of the part of Hashem in us when we are so totally you know, admired in the, the materialism of, of the world today, especially with our world today. But getting back to that generation, you know, knowing what we know about the, about the backslidings and the complaining and the, and the sin of the spies and all, the, and all of the different trials that they, as it were, put Hashem through, and yet knowing what we know about their greatness and their, and their righteousness and their special status in history in terms of their, their being the generation that received Torah and that had that intimate relationship. That is the very, very powerful conundrum. How would you sum it up in terms of a, a way for us to wrap our minds around how people could be so very high spiritually and yet so flawed at the same time? Yeah. I think you. I, think I, I have an idea. I have an idea, but okay. I want to hear what you have to well, say. Well, I, I, I think in some way you've already given us a, a bit of a clue because you describe it as, uh, or I heard it in the form of, they they were at a nexus. They were at a a point where they suddenly had to, they had to change. God said, you know, you can't circle this mountain forever. You can't. Uh, uh, you're not. If we don't move, we don't grow. And so they were at this. <clears throat> they were at a point where, uh, I, I, you know, glibly said everybody out of the pool. And I, I think it. I think that was it. It was God had to separate the real, the, the people whose hearts were ready for this journey, and for those who were not ready. And, and in fact, we're even going to see how how much th- there were some that were not ready. We'll see the okay, but it turned that. out that the entire generation was not was not ready when it comes to the sin of the spies. Only the children, yeah, yeah, were 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 designated by Hashem to be able to go in, and Hashem basically made his decision about that generation. You know what? None of you are really ready at all. Yeah, this was their last chance, I think, before that happened. Right, it's, it's almost and like it's about to happen. God it here in, in Eretz Israel, right. it happens this week. God is fair, right? And God is saying, you know, this is this is the time for you to prepare to change. And if you can't, you know, if you if you don't if you don't use it, you're going to lose it, right? Yeah. So so when it comes to the actual sin of the spies, which of course was the crescendo of this whole sorry state of affairs, when it comes to that, there there's so many different ideas about what happened to them when they went in and they saw what they saw, which was actually part of Hashem's chesed. He was trying to keep the locals busy, so there were people dying and all sorts of things. That and of course they took it all very personally and they, with their very negative self-image that they thought that they were grasshoppers in their own eyes and this and this kind of thing. But but you know one of the ideas that's expressed by by some of the the, the great sages in terms of what happened to them was that they 
they were afraid to go into the land and have to live like regular people because they were so used to being coddled, as it were, by God in sort of like a, like a, in an incubator kind of thing. Like, you know, he was feeding them. He was clothing them. Not that they were taking it for granted, not that they were, that they were um, lazy, but that they were so high that to go into the land and have to plant, you know, from the day that they went into the land under Joshua, they, there was no more manna. Mm-hmm. So they had to be regular people. They had to plant. So, so one idea is that they were like just not prepared to make that kind of a transition because they were not ready to be, in other words, real people, which is really the tikkun of, of, of Garden of Eden, to be real people in this world. So that, that is one idea. But I think that in general, for all of us, as a as a life lesson, which is always important to me, what we gain, what we learn from all of this, in general, step back for a minute as a major Torah principle that we see emerging from this whole conundrum. Something that I speak about very often, and that, that we've actually mentioned extensively lately in the cycle of our Zoom classes, we were learning about David, we were learning about King Saul, and now we're learning about the prophet Jonah. And one of the things that we really, really learn when we study Tanakh deeply and we concentrate on the personalities of the great people, one of the things that we really understand is that a, a, a tzaddik, a person who Hashem considers to be righteous, is not perfect, but he's still considered to be righteous and he makes mistakes and he admits them, like King David's mistakes. He, it, King David is called by our sages the master of teshuva. He is the one who established what it really means to repent because he was always immediately admitting his mistakes, you know? Yeah. We're learning now about the prophet Jonah in our Sunday Zooms. It's so amazing because he was also a tremendous person. He was very holy, very great, but he had a real issue. <laughs> he had a real issue, which we're trying to understand. It's almost as if at this point we understand like he, like Hashem is compassionate and is merciful and forgives all his creations no matter who they are, even if they're idolaters, like Ninveh. And Jonah's position is like, I disagree. I don't think I, don't think I believe in Teshuvah. I don't think a person should have the right to... You know, he's like very strict, right? The point is he had his issues, and he was very righteous. King Saul was an, a beautiful person, was an, an amazing soul. He messed, just messed up so terribly. King David is Mashiach, the spirit of Mashiach, the, the antecessor of Mashiach. The man sinned, and Hashem forgave him. So because there is a non-Jewish attitude about great people, that they are absolutely perfect. And in fact, isn't there like a whole concept in Christian theology? Well, you can't be perfect, and therefore the rest of the sentence, therefore somebody has to do it for you because you can't possibly be perfect. But who said you're supposed to be? Because Torah teaches that you're not supposed to be perfect because it's not about getting there. It's not about the goal, as it were, the reward. Just the goal of the human experience is not, is not about the, the, the finish line. It's about the journey. It's about how hard you work. It's, it's not even about how hard you work as much as it's about how hard you want to work, how hard you try, even, when, even if you don't accomplish. So there's this idea, you know, you know there's a verse that, uh, Ecclesiastes Kohelet tells us, which is very widely misunderstood in the non-Jewish world. The verse says, there is no such thing as a righteous man in this world who does only good and does not sin. And so many people look at that verse and they think it's a condemnation. They think it's like saying like, oh, you know, you can't, you, you can't win. You know, Hashem, Hashem uh, 
you know, is not gonna is not gonna let this go because you know you, everybody sins, right? And and then they take it, you know, for example, in, in Christian theology, it's taken somewhere else altogether. But that verse is not a condemnation; it's simply a fact. Yeah, it's simply a fact. There's no such thing as a person who is only good who doesn't sin. Every person sins, but that's okay because mm-hmm. Hashem forgives that person as long as they are sincere and they try. And so there's this skewed idea that people have that, 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 that we can't possibly be a saint. There's no such, that's not true. A person can be a saint, can be saintly, and a person can make mistakes. And I think that that is my understanding that helps me to, to deal with the, the, the um, chasm in, in, of understanding in this generation, that they were so great and they were so flawed. At the same time, and, and, that, and that, that's, in a way, it's just a, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful, it's, it is what it is. It, 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 is, it is the beauty of, of the recognition of the reality of what it means to be human being. We, we have our moments, Jim, yeah. as people, you have to admit, we have our moments, but we also have a lot of failures. But that's what it means to be a person. So in a way, that generation that is so praised for their greatness and yet that we see that they're so flawed. Maybe they're like the archetypal generation. Maybe they're maybe in, in that in that regard we can learn from them. They're like they're like a uh, the epitome of the human experience because a person can g- reach great heights, and at the same time a person can be hopelessly flawed, and Hashem sorts it out, and right. we do our best. Well, you know, I think the key to understanding that. That that very vital dynamic is the uh, the experience that we see that Moshe goes through with his brother and sister in uh, Parsha Shlach, and that is the idea when they question Moses and they you know in Balotcha in, in oh I'm in, sorry in yeah I'm, I'm you know right, when we're talking right. about the, about these you're parshas, talking about when Miriam got when right. Miriam got leprosy yeah. from Sarat. and, and so Sarat we also from... we also but we're also we read this unmistakable uh, reckoning that Hashem basically uh, describes the Torah describes Moshe Rabbeinu as being not not one of <laughs> this is incredible but Moshe Rabbeinu is the uh, one of the or is the most uh, Humble person on the face right. of the earth. Wow. In my entire house, yeah, he is the trusted one. <laughs> it's wow, like unbelievable. Yeah, and I think that's. I think you know the the. In, in fact, but again, Hashem is not. You know, he's not condemning us for not being in that place that Moshe Rabbeinu was in. But he's he's setting up for us an example, uh, a model for something that he is fashioned within us that we have the capacity for. We have the capacity for humility. And humility, as we see it described it here in the Torah, is, is, a, uh, is an avenue. It is a way to open up your mind and your heart and actually have that connection. Because, you know, Hashem says, well, even my prophets, uh, they see things kind of in a cloudy fashion. And it talks that way even about dreams. And I think the sages even tell us that that the dreams aren't considered a complete prophecy by even by a prophet because they they hint that your own ego often will color a dream your own experiences will color a dream and yet moshe moshe apparently didn't have to learn this it's actually uh, a trait he was born with and and so 
we're all born with it, but others, you know, we talked. You, you, you just talked about this amazing thing where where the, the people that be that apparently dr- were the engine that drove all this uh, uh, unhappiness and this complaint. They developed that. They developed it, and they. They almost because they wanted to. They because wanted they, because to. They, because they because they 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 were seduced by that kind yeah. of like yeah. egging on mm-hmm. to get more into the. You know what, Jim? The whole economy that's so amazing that we were just talking about, uh, as you mentioned now. The the if I look at Parshat Bahalutcha as a slice of life in the desert because it's so comprehensive and it, it just it just covers so many different events and. Uh, it's such, you know, beginning in chapter 8 of the book of Numbers, right? Make sure everybody's on the same page. of It's literally a, 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 um, a cornucopia, a kaleidoscope of, of, of what that generation was all about. Look at the extremes, Jim. Look at the extreme between the, the Pesach Sheni people, right. right? The people who demanded... Who begged for an opportunity to bring the Passover offering late? Look at that. Look at them on one side, and look at those who cultivated a complaint. Yeah. So cultivated who, who who were who were learning how to who were developing who were who were craving to crave physicality materialism. Mm-hmm. These two extremes are are actually the perfect illustration of what I was trying to say about the about the extremes of this generation. Because on the one hand, you had this group of people who come to Moshe. And they said, we missed out on the, on the Passover offering. There was no such thing ever recorded on land, air, or sea that you could make up a commandment like the Passover. Nobody ever heard of such a thing. Now, kudos to Moshe, who his leadership, again, is the benchmark of leadership. And he was so humble that he didn't just say, like, what are you bothering me for? Like, what, what a ridiculous idea. What do you want from me? He said, I don't know. Let me ask Hashem. Wow. And so What and leader so says that people, today? Exactly. And I want, to, I want to talk more about yeah. that. But so those people, they were like so motivated by humility, by, by a craving for Hashem. Yeah. They were motivated by a craving for Hashem. They craved more. They craved not to be left out. They said, why should we be diminished from mm-hmm. our connection to God? So that's on the one side. So they're like, that's, if, let's say we're talking about the same people. Yeah. The, and so it's not like two different groups of people even. So that's that side of the personality. Like, who who's the character with two faces from Batman? Janos? Oh, I was thinking of the Greek mythology. Yes. I haven't seen anything in quite a few yeah. years. But the point, the point is, you have the wedding, and you have, you have that side of the personality, craving Hashem so badly, mm-hmm. wanting to do the Passover, even though they're late. And Hashem said, you know what? You're right. You can do it. And then on the other hand, you have the people that are craving this fantasy yeah. Of meat, which is the only reason that they're craving that is because it's the very opposite yeah. of what they of what they have now of the manna. Because they they don't want to be ethereal. They don't want to be only attached to God. They want to they want to party in the materialism, and they want to give in to that to that lust, as it were, mm-hmm. for for materialism. So so it's pulling them apart. These two different. Here in this one parasha, we see these two extremes, craving for God or craving for the materialism. Yeah. I, I had a note that, that the this national hysteria, it didn't, the women weren't driven by it. Right. Isn't that, I think that's fascinating. 
And and that's that is a principle that we find all, all over Torah. From we found we found that already with uh, the golden calf. Yeah, that the yeah. women did not participate in in the sin of the golden calf, and here also the women were not involved whatsoever in the lashon hara. They did not accept it. They did not listen to it. And when the children of Israel finally came into the land with Joshua, it was uh, it ha- it had a an inordinate amount of. Older women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know that that's kind of a a, a call out to to all of all of us in in the male realm that you know we're we're made to be a little more physical. I mean, we're you know a, a, yet a woman can can go through childbirth and you know get ready to do it again. You know, a year or two later, what <laughs> what man could you know could could face that You're quite sure that only a woman could go through childbirth right I'm just checking cuz I know there's a lot going on today Oh I know but I'm I I remain firmly convinced and I have Okay me have, too just there's, checking There's no shadow of a doubt in my mind and I come from a family of seven kids so you know I I, I know how that happened by the way and I know, have seven kids There there you go so And they have many kids and it's it's things have been the same for us too Yeah but I, I, but what the, my what I'm I'm attempting to say is is that you know uh, the, the because because God makes us a certain way you know women were fashioned you know Eve was fashioned you know after Adam had been created and so that's one of the explanations we get from Hazal from the sages that she was actually a more perfected soul she was almost more finished and so. That's why, you know, this is a key, if, if people haven't realized it, that so many of the mitzvot in the Torah are directed at the, at the, the men, who, the, the, the men who, of, of Israel, in that they have more rough edges to wear off. And so you have the, and this is, this again is, <clears throat> goes part and, <clears throat> excuse me, part and parcel with the fact that these men are in the leadership role. And, and so we're we're being forced here when we read these two parshiot, we're being forced to contrast the leadership who are objecting and giving giving in to their physicality, and comp- contrasting that with Moses, who is who who has learned, who who uh, who's who's worn off or let go of those rough edges of manhood, and and how many how many men how many of us can be. Uh, can can exercise the humility of of Moshe Rabbeinu, and I think this is what they were. I think this is what they were. They were faced. I think when they went into the land, they said we we were like, we were like grasshoppers in our own land and our own eyes. They could not deal with giving up all of what it means to be uh, a leader because they thought they were giving right. it up, and yet they were not. But, right. But this is. That's, that's always a very, very big problem, ego. You know, that's the, the whole Mesilat Yesharim that we've been studying it, it, is all about how to cultivate a place for Hashem. That's what humility is all about. It's about being able to receive the light of Hashem and be able to move over and make a place for Him because the natural tendency of a person is to want to be in control. That yeah. comes from also from eating from the tree of knowledge. That was really the whole purpose of it. It's like to try to be a little bit, a little God, yeah. you know, and to try to be in control of our own destiny. And ego is always the, the, the biggest problem. 
And Moshe didn't have any. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have any ego whatsoever. I, I know, that's so hard to take in, isn't it? I mean, because we're, t- we're not taught that in Western thinking. We're not taught that. And especially, and, and uh, you know, as a, as a former Christian, I can tell you that that was, there were three, th- three, there were three or four main things I wrestled with when I, I embraced Torah and I left that, that mindset behind. And there was a kind of ego that I had to deal with because uh, I, I was I was I suffered from being uh, raised under uh, replacement theology, and I was taught this lie that God had abandoned the chosen people of Israel, and that that uh, he he would he would go on and and that you know that the, the Christians these on these Christian soldiers were now the new the new the new Israel and and I had to wrestle with the ideas. Wait a minute. When I read when I read uh, Exodus chapter four, where uh, Moses is told by Hashem, "Go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son," I thought, "You mean I'm not the fair-haired kid anymore?" You know, and and the, the uh, I mean, people actually bridle at the idea uh, of the, the Jewish people being called the chosen people or the chosen nation. It's not something they call themselves. It's something that Hashem calls them. And it's not because, and I'm having to, you know, reiterate the words from the Tanakh. It's not because they were, they were special. It's because, uh, because he chose them to accept his Torah. And that's the whole key. At Sinai, they were in that state. They were in that wonderful state. They were, they, they were humbled by being at, the, at Sinai. And so it, we were, they were in that state of humility a, a Moses-like humility, they were ready to accept the Torah. And that's what God is saying to, to the people again and saying to us again, I think, in these two, this, these two Parsha, is are you ready to, if you're ready to ascend, are you ready to have a mountain experience like Moses had? Are you ready to do it? If you need, you need to throw off these things. You need to mm-hmm. open up and be a vessel. You need to, to be, if you want to be a light to the nations, you have to you have to be a menorah like instrument that's ready to accept this oil of this pure oil of Torah and this this uh, oil is also likened to um, uh, what is the other aspect of, of oil uh, it's an, actually it's anointing um, but the the point is is that we have to be those vessels and it begins with the nation of Israel because they are they are our priesthood. For, for the rest of the planet. You mentioned about the whole thing about ego and Moshe Rabbeinu, and, and I'm saying fighting ego is, is a, life, a life's work. But you know, this, the whole concept of leadership that you mentioned, Jim, also is a thread that connects not only these two parsha, but the whole concept in the Book of Numbers of leadership emerging and what Moshe and Aaron and Miriam represent. And in the, in the parsha of Bahalotcha, after the com- the complainers in chapter eleven of Numbers, and then the whole thing with the dissatisfaction with the manna and Moshe, his frustration with the people, basically where he said like, "What what did I do to deserve this?" Like he almost gives up and he says like, "If you if you like me, then kill me now." <laughs> it's like he's so frustrated with these people, yeah. 
Like, you know, I can't carry this entire nation. It's too heavy for me. And if this is how you deal with me, then kill me now if I have favor in your eyes and let me not see my evil. What a verse. Like, if you like me at all, just like finish me off now because I can't handle these people. And that, that moment, the Sanhedrin was born. And in the next verse, then Hashem said to Moshe, go to me, gather to me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and its officers. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. I will descend and speak with you there. I will increase some of the spirit that is upon you and place it upon them. And they shall be the burden of the people with you and you shall not bear alone. So this is the beginning of this concept of the elders, the 70 elders that are basically, uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu presides over, as it were, in, in the court. But there's an amazing secret in this verse, Jim. It's so powerful. It's one of the most beautiful ideas ever. And the idea is, he says, to, Hashem says to Moshe, gather to me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and its officers in Hebrew. So, ziknei ha'am, the elders of the people, vishotrav. And it's shotrim, it's officers. officers. Who were the shotrim? They're like the, the police, Hashem, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. But specifically, you have to open up your heart in the deepest way because this is just an amazing thought. Hashem here is referring to the Shotrim that we know. He's referring to the Egyptian Jewish policemen, the taskmasters. Wow. So back, so back in Egypt, right, back in the time of the persecution in, in Egypt, in the time of the exile, there were the... Egyptian taskmasters, mm-hmm. and then they were the Jewish taskmasters that were given over. There was were, were a certain amount of Egyptian taskmasters yeah. over a certain amount of Jewish, as it were, policemen, and then the, the Jewish policemen were over groups of 10, mm-hmm. right? Like Dotan. Now, yes. Yeah. Now, unfairly, unfair, Dotan, right. Unfairly, sometimes these, you find people commenting and writing in different articles, whatever, some, t- some people un- rather unfairly compare this concept of the Jewish policemen in Egypt to the concept of the kapos, the Jewish kapos in the concentration camps. First of all, it is not a good comparison, but the first thing that I have to say is there are actually a lot of beautiful eyewitness stories about the kapos who risked their lives for the Jewish people. So they, it's not like they were all just like cooperating with the Nazis. And who, who can judge? And mm-hmm. who can possibly even understand what everybody went through at that time and how horrific the whole, all the dynamics were? But there are a lot of, a lot of eyewitness testimonies about kapos who did unbelievable things at the risk of their own lives. But that's, so the point is, what is this all about? What our sages tell us about the Jewish policemen in the Egyptian exile is that when Pharaoh made that rule that there wouldn't be straw anymore, you have to get it yourself. And then everything just fell apart because everybody, it all just went into chaos because they had to come up with the same number. And if not, they were severely beaten. It was the Jewish policemen who took the blows. Mm. It was the Jewish policemen who protected the, the Jews. They took the blows for them and they somehow completed the tally at great personal cost and sacrifice right. of their lives, they did whatever it is that they did, not resting for a moment. They, they, they completed the tally and they took the blows when there were blows. And those are the men that Hashem said should be the original Sanhedrin, not 
the greatest, wisest men, not the most learned men, the men who were, who were uh, proven to be ready to risk it all to, to, with self-sacrifice to give their lives, to protect their people with compassion. It's the same people. It's the ones, Hashem says to Moshe here in this unbelievable verse, the ones that you know mm-hmm. to be the elders of the people and its officers who've already proven themselves in that regard. To me, this is a phenomenal lesson in what leadership really is. That's what a leader is. We, I mean, we learn so much about leadership from Moshe, from his total lack of ego, from the right. fact that Hashem himself was able to testify and say, and Moses was the humblest man who walked upon the face of the earth, and the person who wrote that down was Moshe. Yeah, right? exactly. Which is such an unbelievable trip to think about, because from the time before he wrote it and the time after he wrote it, no, there was no change. It made no difference that he heard from the master of the universe this accolade, and that's why it was true. Yeah, he, that's the, why the, it was true the, because the fact he, that he wrote it down shows exactly. his humility. You know? That's right, because it didn't it didn't change anything. Yeah. So so he, so he's if he's the benchmark of leadership, who are those that join that join him? Because not everyone can be on that level, mm-hmm. but the ones that join him are the ones that have taken the blows, and that are willing to take the blows. Not they're not sitting in a gilded office. Yeah. surrounded by handlers with a teleprompter and, and everything is, you know. And this tells us so much about who is worthy of being a leader and who we should look to for true leaderships and who really cares. It's like it's everything is on its head today when you think about the, the terrible misrepresentation of those that are supposed to be leaders and, and who they are. This is, this is the Torah's idea, Hashem's idea, of what it really means to be a committed leader of the people. And, and, and that's just such, a, such an, on the one hand, it's such a, a beautiful thing to aspire to, and it's such a testimony to, to this idea. And on the other hand, it's, such a, it's really such an indictment, yeah. an indictment of the, of the self-serving, manipulative uh, type of leadership that we have today. Yeah. Yeah, rather than have leaders, we have politicians, and they're not the same thing. And I think also a key in this this phrase that we just read, that you just read, Rabbi, is this amazing idea that Hashem uh, gave some of Moshe Rabbeinu's spirit to this this uh, group of people, this the, these leaders that would become uh, become a, a, a combination Congress. And Supreme Court, uh, and and their and those who enforce the the dictates that are that are brought down by this court system, is that uh, and I I'm, I have to assume that what was shared among them and was spread and and that God injected into them by sharing this spirit was a little more humility on their parts. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that the the uh, the elders that became the Sanhedrin, uh, I, I would have think it would have humbled them to accept a mantle of, of the leadership and, and those who would adjudicate the Torah in a practical, everyday way to, to the nation of Israel. And, you know, what's interesting is, is within these, these uh, I, I believe, and because I'm thinking of two Parsha, I'm conflating them, but we also have the episode of... Uh, Moshe's father-in-law uh, is decides to go back to his own land. He, Moses invites him to come along, and he I think he sees that there is that for him to be there, 
that there would be a there would be a crisis in leadership, and I think he saw that and thought that he wouldn't he would only muddle the muddy the waters by being there. Do you feel like well, that's I, th- a- I think that I think it also was a testimony to his humility and sense of responsibility that he yeah. went off to take responsibility for his own people and to bring them yeah. to Hashem. Yeah, especially Amen. after everything that he had been through with with other gods. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 I think that the, the you know the policeman uh, from the Egyptian exile that Hashem chose to put to place upon them the spirit of Moshe. I think they had already proven their humility. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that the the fact that they that they took those blows and made themselves into the into the uh, vessels know, the, sort the, of the vessels as it were to absorb the you know the suffering of Israel. I think that took a tremendous amount of self uh, de- deprecation. And, and, and just come, there comes to mind, I just want to mention two other, I think, classic examples of leadership. Since we're talking about this as a benchmark, you know, the concept of what a leader truly is. You know where else we see this? It's interesting in um, the concept of the city of refuge that we read about in Numbers 35 mm-hmm. later on in this book. In Numbers 35, and particularly verse 25, the idea is that the city of refuge is designated for a person who committed manslaughter, that right. is to say, involuntary uh, manslaughter, not murder, intentional, but who accidentally kills someone. And so he is given this uh, uh, safe, safe area where he will be, where he'll be protected from the, the blood redeemer, which is a next of kin that would, that would have the right, as it were, to, to uh, take, his, take the justice out on this person. But if he goes to the city of refuge, he is protected. And how long does he stay in the city of refuge? It's what seven years. He stays, he stays only until a certain point, and from that point oh, on, the death is a, of he the, is uh, a lot. Exactly um, right. He stays in that city of refuge until the death of the reigning high priest. Right. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Until the end of the until the end of the life of the of the current high priest, and then at that point, he's allowed to leave the city of refuge, and he can no longer be harmed. What is the connection between the accidental murderer, as it were, the involuntary manslaughter person, and the and the high priest? That they are connected in that in that he all the while that the high priest who was in office at the time that he that his accident happened is alive, he has to stay there. But when he leaves, but when he leaves the world, that high priest, when he passes away, then he can come out. So they have some sort of a connection. Is it a is connection it a, is Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was going to suggest go one. But go, well, I'm probably going to be wrong, but I, I'm thinking that it has more to do with the, the Kohen Gadol and his, his, uh, his own responsibility over exactly, the people. Exactly. It's phenomenal. It's yeah. phenomenal. Chazal say in so many words, our sages tell us that the Kohen Gadol, in a way, is guilty mm-hmm. yeah. and responsible. Because you know why? Because if he would have been the person that he should have been as the main conduit bringing Hashem's blessing into the world and balance, and if he would have prayed properly, it wouldn't have happened. Amen. Because accidents don't just happen. They happen when there is a cosmic imbalance. Yeah. And therefore there is like a soul connection like at the hip between that mis, that mis, uh, mishap, you know, that, that, that poor person who unfortunately this happened through him this accident, and the Kohen Gadol, because the Kohen Gadol wasn't the person he should have been. Right. In other words, that's leadership, that, he's, that his, he's not being served by the people. He is such a servant of the people that, he, that his job is to ensure 
that Hashem's compassion is is on everyone because He is making all the proper tikkunim. Yeah. That's one one example. Another example also that we find in another area of Torah, which is vastly misunderstood, is is in Deuteronomy twenty one, where we read about the axed heifer. Right. Right. So what happened there is that there is an unsolved murder. And when there is an unsolved murder and a and a corpse is found, then the elders of the of the city that's nearest, you know, they have to come out and they have to measure to which city it's it's nearest. There's the whole idea that you know that the person was not given proper uh, accompaniment, you know, out of the city, and so pe- perhaps like a bandit s- set upon him, and they, perhaps they didn't give him an, enough of, uh, enough of a send off, bread and water, and a safe a safe uh, accompaniment. But the idea is that what happens when there is an unsolved murder is that there, there's something that's very strange. The ritual, as it were, the mitzvah, the Hashem's commandment is to take a, a heifer and to behead it, yeah. really, in such a way. It's not exactly beheading. It's not decapitating. It's breaking the neck from the back. Mm-hmm. And then having it roll down into this embankment, yeah. you know, where nothing's, where nothing's grown. It's very, very... Uh, uh, unnerving you know it's very very kind of like visceral and traumatizing it's a powerful imagery yeah you know and so Maimonides writes that one of the aspects of this commandment is that people are going to be talking about it because it's just so in your face like oh did you hear like they actually did this it can't be that often that they will take this heifer and break its neck and and send it tumbling down and so and people are going to be upset and they're going to start talking and they're going to say why how could this be and they're going to say you know that someone was murdered and we don't know who, who was responsible and how could this be? And there should be amongst the people a sense of, of um, frustration, anger, outrage. We have to do something about it. We have to find the murderer. Yeah. We, have to, we can't have a situation like this. We cannot uh, have our society uh, you know, um, suffer this type of, this type of um, phenomenon. Let's do something about it. Let's rise up. Yeah. So, so all of these things are, are designed to 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 um, raise up, as you've been saying this this whole this whole time today, to raise the people up to a level where they're always striving for betterment. They're always striving to touch base with the, with their their spiritual nature and with and being connected to Hashem. And again, this is all a reflection of leadership exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's the template. May we merit, Jim. May we merit. You know, one one of the one of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah night, when we eat the special foods, the symbolic foods. So there's a custom of eating a, a fish's head. Yeah. You know that, right? Yeah. On Rosh Hashanah's head. On Rosh Hashanah night, this custom of eating a fish head. I'm not a big head eater myself, right? But Nor those am I. who eat the, the, but those who eat the head of the fish. So the prayer that they intone is, "May Hashem bless us uh, to be at the head and not at the tail." But I always, I always say it differently. I always say, may Hashem bless us that we should merit to have a head, to have a head, to have a true head that is, that is the head of, the head of the, our people, the, the, the one who is basically the reflection of everything that we're discussing. Mm-hmm. I'm personally holding out for the big M myself. The big Mo, the one with the motion, the one with the, with the magic. Um, that's, that's what we need, the one who will be able to truly lift up the people and lift up Hashem's name in the eyes of the whole world as well. Amen.